You're very welcome to the Locker Room Podcast. This is episode number 24. Would you believe this is the first time we've done a, a live podcast episode and we've brought on some really good guests for tonight. Uh, maybe it'll be an absolute disaster. I'm here with Ross Bennett here beside me, my co-host. Ross, it could, it could crash and burn completely. It could, but I've got a good feeling about it. Two great people and guests we've got in today, uh, minus us two kids. So hopefully it brings the standard up. Exactly. At least we don't have Joe Coulter here to mess it up as well. So <laughs> well, he we, is I, here. Is he here in the background? Right. We He's keep, somewhere. Yeah, let's keep him in the background. I, I, I heard there's only place for one defensively minded down uh, coach and manager in this podcast. So we, Joe didn't make the cut again, once again. Instead, we brought in his his... His older brother and hero, uh, Stevie Poacher. Steve, it's good to have you back. You were only on two weeks ago. Yeah, I was here um, on Yeah, exactly. No, great, great to have you back. Uh, I've been, I'm delighted as well. I've got Colm Nally. So, uh, Colm, I've tried to, to get on over the last couple of months. And, and Colm, I was on to you about coming on at one stage. I didn't know that you'd come into a, a coaching roundtable as your first episode. So I, I promise we will get you on for a, a full interview about your experiences and everything like that, which are really, really interesting. But it's great to have you, Colm. Thanks very much, Karen. Looking forward to it. Good, good stuff. Colm, I was looking, I'm, I'm going to get you to do a plug. I was looking on Twitter and obviously you're the, you're the coach with um, the Mead senior football team and have been for the last few seasons. And we'll get on to that in a few minutes just to chat briefly about it. I won't get you to say too much in preparation for the All-Ireland. Um, but tell us a little bit about your book. So it's Game-Based Training Sessions for Gaelic Football. This is the second edition because I, I know you had... Um, one out previously, and also give tell tell the listeners how they can get it, what email address, and everything like that. Okay, and um, thanks very much for that, Karen. Well, look, it's a self-published book. It's just really like I, I've been involved for years in coach education through Leinster, and um, an awful lot of the times you do the courses, people are looking for resources, resources, resources. So I just got the idea of throwing some together. Uh, I done a, a book about two years ago, just game-based training activities. And it went really well. So what the new one is, it's basically game-based training sessions. So it's 22 training sessions, um, all based on sort of specific and bespoke sessions that the coach might be able to use and implement. And really to give them ideas, um, kind of branched out a little bit into some sort of um, mental gym work and some um, nutritional advice and those goalkeeping sessions there. So look, this is a hobby to me, right? And it's just something that I, I said I'd explore and it's gone very well. And we've, we're actually on our third print now. So... The last book sold over 3,000, and this one's, of course, to say that, to sell the same. And I re really just cap it at that because it becomes a chore then and too much. And, and I, got, I just I can't handle the, um, the feedback about the spelling mistakes and things like that. So I just, <laughs> I just put it at that, you know, especially when you have teachers involved now. They'll be picking holes right. and everything, you know. Exactly, exactly. The administration and logistics challenges. Tell us the email address that people can contact. It's just simple, um, CN training manual at gmail.com and you get a bounce back mail there with all the ways we can get it and look um, again it's more of a labor of love it's, it's 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 not expensive it's really you're not really looking to make money you're just really make cover costs and get it out there you know that's look I, I enjoy sharing information because um when you get involved in sharing as you guys well know um, it keeps you on your toes and it means you have to go and source new information as well and that's what i like doing and i know like Lots of people contact me and send me ideas and things like that. And, and that's how we roll. It's great to do that. And I enjoy doing that. Yeah, exactly. I'd recommend anybody as well. Make sure to check out Colm's uh, YouTube channel. So it's Colm Nally. Just search for Colm Nally. 
Colm, I was looking there, you've got over 3,000 subscribers. Every mm-hmm. video you put up, there are two and a half thousand people viewing it and everything like that. And it's just some brilliant quality kind of drills and practices and everything like that on it. So, um, yeah, it's brilliant to see. I think we'll get on to it afterwards just about a new age coach and person yeah. sharing. And it's a little bit different than maybe when people started back in the day, but we'll, we'll, we'll chat about yeah. that in a minute. And Stevie, I, for anybody who doesn't know you, I mean, I don't think there is anybody who doesn't know you, but anyway, <laughs> anybody who doesn't, so you're a PT teacher in St. Joseph's uh, in Newry, you're a columnist with the uh, Gaelic Life, uh, under 17 coach of County Down team as well, um, obviously ex-Carlo manager. You have on your Twitter uh, profile Moran Mountains, so you've, you've spent so much time in the Moran Mountains, you've actually become the Moran Mountains as well. Is, is there any other job that you, you feel you need to add on to that list? No, well, Colin, thanks. Uh, no, listen, I, I, I've taken on a, a manager's job there this year with Bryansford Senior Club and down here as well. So, uh, which has been which has been enjoyable despite the fact that it's been such a short season. And uh, but listen, look, it, it's uh, as I said, you like a bit like Colin there. Um, you know, I I thoroughly enjoy hearing you know sort of sharing knowledge and and for me the greatest resource we have as coaches is each other. And I've always said that like and you know sharing is learning and. Even the article with the Gaelic Life started about mm. 10 years ago. It's hard to be, actually hard to believe it. I still get a bit of abuse about it because I haven't changed my profile picture in the Gaelic Life in 10 years. So I still look at the 28, you know, yeah. you know I'm 40, so on, and I'm not changing it. But, uh, yeah. no, but listen, the Gaelic Life thing started with four articles, a warm-up, a main session, a cool-down, and a general article. And Declan Bogue at the time said to me, look, will you continue doing it? And, you know, something... I, I really enjoyed it. I don't think people on the outside realise as well. The Gaelic Life is a is a completely voluntary based paper as well. So people that, that write articles for it, it's completely voluntary based from from all the contributors. Uh, bar bar the lads whose whose obviously livelihood depends on it, you know. But so it's a fantastic production, and you know it's GA people that are behind it, and it's a GA driven paper. And I think it's a I think it's a brilliant resource to have. It's it's a pity that. That all the provinces maybe wouldn't follow suit and have a, a Munster one and a Leinster one and, and maybe a Connacht one, you know, in, in some capacity because there's a market for it here, and you know, and it's it's a it's a great read and it passes a good hour and a half and you get some great information out of it and not just even from a coaching perspective, but you get great information from from all the codes of Gaelic games, you know, your camogie, your hurling, your ladies football, you know, it gives schools football great coverage and it's a fantastic product and I, I can't speak highly enough of the paper. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're definitely heading in that direction, aren't we? Where there's more tactical analysis and, and more in-depth analysis uh, through print media, through digital, on TV, and it's, it's great to see. Okay, we'll get cracking into it. Guys, just really quick word about our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Ripped.app. Uh, they've been with us now for the last few months, Cormac and the lads. So it's a coaching platform that connects performance coaches with their clients and athletes. It helps coaches program more efficiently and effectively and deliver individualized training programs to their clients and athletes via the Ripped app. So it's Ripped.app, uh, where they have supportive exercises, technique videos, and other content. The platform streamlines collection of workouts, well-being and training load data so coaches have their data all in one place and can quickly uh, gain insights they need to optimize the performance and improve results for the clients and athletes. It's perfect for S&C coaches. Ross, I know that there are some online training devices being used in Arsenal Football Club and I know whenever Arsenal do something, 
you're definitely going to jump on that then introducing into QPR. <laughs> I'm a bit old school. I like the pen and paper with the programs. But for any, for anyone who uh, who trains remotely, it's a perfect resource. Uh, as, and, and like you say, it's something that potentially is going to come into the modern era more and more in the next few years. So it's a great stuff that Cormac and the lads are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great tool uh, for SNC coaches and also sports scientists and, and normal technical coaches involved with teams or working with individual clients and also gyms and online coaches. Uh, Ripped are used by Swim Ireland. Kerry GA and of course ourselves here at DSS where we've launched the online training uh, uh, service as well with Ben and some of the lads, some of the SNC coaches. So it's not a bad company to be in with some of the Kerry boys, so we're really delighted to be involved with them. We have a special offer to share with our listeners, so head over to the Daily Sports Science website, dailysportscience.com, and you'll see a link to sign up to Ripped in the blog section for two months free. And it's actually, it's the perfect time now with the off season of the club uh, section of the year coming up and just to get the programs out to your players online it's a nice kind of fast and efficient way to do it Ross I'm, I'm promising this year we're going to get Joe Coulter fit so I reckon now bring in the professional we tried when we were involved with London J and failed miserably so it's time to bring in the professionals yeah hopefully his knee can take it this time because he had a lot of issue rehabbing his knee so we'll we'll pass him on to a good physio as well yeah exactly we'll get that in okay so thanks to ripped for their continued support and head over to their website ripped.app okay lads i want to start off first of all by just uh, jumping in a little bit about your previous experiences and how that may have molded your coaching colin I, I'm quite interested because you were a goalkeeper. Or you were a goalkeeper. So you started as a goalkeeper. And I'm interested how did that form your coaching then? Or, or there's not ma- if I think of it, there's not many ex-goalkeeping players who go on to be quite famous coaches. I know there's, I, I was just looking through my notes and obviously the ex-Spanish manager, I'm going to embarrass myself with my, my pigeon Spanish of Julian Lopetigui. I presume he's Basque, who is now the manager of Sevilla after beating Man United in the Europa League final, uh, was Real Madrid manager. Um, I know there was uh, obviously Dino Zoff and a couple of the, the Italian managers uh, during the time as well. Did, did it, what, what was the effect of your playing career then on your coaching column? And, and do you bring some of those things even now into your coaching with the, the Mead lads? Yeah, that's interesting. Like, um, like, like everybody else, I, I'm from Belbriggan originally, so I was always kind of knocking around a few Dublin underage teams. But for a few years, um, my claim is um, I was the most famous unknown goalkeeper in the country. And what I mean by that was um, I played in goals for O'Dwyer's, and that's John O'Leary's club. And John played outfield for um, the club, and he was a Dublin goalkeeper for so long before Stephen Cluxon. So everybody knew John played outfield, never knew who played in goals. Yeah. That was me for so long. But um, like I moved down to Loud when I got married at 25 and I went on to play with Loud for five years. But um, like everything else, a lot of lads are putting goals simply because they're no good anywhere else when we were growing up, right? And I think that was my case, really. So I was, I was tall and they needed someone in the goal. So I started off um, playing in goals. I played a lot of soccer and goals and things like that. But I got to enjoy it. And at that time, there was no goalkeeping coaching. So that kind of got in line, for, for especially for Gaelic football got me in line with kind of coaching because I had to source um, ideas to sort of train myself as a goalkeeper, if you know. So that was my first step into um, coaching was sourcing goalkeeping materials. I used to buy a lot of Simon Smith's books and CDs. He used to be the Newcastle goalkeeping coach. 
and, and I tried to implement a few ideas from him. And what I found now, um, Karen, which is very interesting, just thinking about it there today, is like when we would video our matches now, we'd video two um, locations, one from the side, one from behind. And I'm drawn to looking at the one from behind now. And that's, I feel, because I played so much from behind. So I'm looking at um, spaces and how to make spaces, how to stop spaces. And one of the things that um, I was always drawn to was the kind of numbers on players' backs. Because I had this theory in my head that um, if a fella with the low numbers is going to take a shot, he's going to wallop the ball. If a fella with the high numbers was going to be placing it. So in a way, you were analysing then. You know? So I, I kind of brought that in to that. And um, I would always feel that, um, I'd always say the goalkeeper's the jewel in the crown. Now that's changed now, and um, part of my coach philosophy is the less shots that the keeper ha has to save, the better the game for him because he's organised better, and that's the keys now. You're looking for communication, you're looking for kind of scanning, right? You're looking for restarts. Like you're you're, you're crucial to it now. Um, I'd like to think that um, I I, would, I try to um, have kickout strategies and things like that, but it's all evolved so much now. But at the start, it definitely shaped my thinking of kind of of, of how I coach today for definite. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I was just thinking about Stephen Cluxton during the week? I don't know why it came into my head, but you know the way people would have said that Cluxton reinvented the Gaelic the game of Gaelic football and he changed it forever. And I thought, I don't. I, he, in my mind, I don't think he did actually. I think he just did it better than everybody else. I think he just was a better goalkeeper because if you think about it, a really top class keeper, you want to have, you want him to be meticulous. You want him to be very fit. You want his kick-out strategy to be excellent. You want him to be very mobile. You want him to be commanding, good shot stopper. So I don't know, did he, like, did, yeah. in your mind, did he do something different or did, did he just do everything really, really well? I, 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 as I said, John O'Leary was, um, like, I was, I was tight with, very tight with John and close to John for a while. And he was sort of my first kind of, well, he'd look up to um, But I used to speak to him a lot and he used to slice a ball. Um, and we all wore Adidas flankers. I don't know if you're aware, aware of that. They were rugby boots with a hard toe. Now, the, the thinking behind that was more power at the time, right? You're looking for long distance kickers. But he constantly had this kicker where the ball seemed to slice off his boot. And I remember asking him one time, is that um, by accident or by choice? And he said, it's a disguised kick. So even back then, they were looking at ways of implementing it. I remember, and like, because I'd be old enough that when Stephen came in, with Davy Bourne was ahead of him, and another fellow called Mick Pender. And um, Stephen's kickout wasn't what it was today. Mm. He'd done an awful lot of work um, behind the scenes with um, with Gary. I forget Gary's surname there. Um, Gary Matches, right? Oh, yeah, and they, yeah. they, they were the first. They brought in a heavier ball from Italy. It's a soccer ball. They actually sourced, I think, from around Juventus academies. And it was a dead ball. And, and they practiced with that to give them more accuracy. So they kind of did probably were the first to implement sort of a regime of practice. Yeah. But you're right, like keepers like John O'Leary and other keepers where they had strategies that were relevant to their time and they were looking for new ways. But I'd say you're right, he like refined it into what it was today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um Ross, you're you're a former you're a former youth defender for, for soccer in who were you with Brent Brentford and a couple of other clubs knocking around. How do you think I mean it's interesting because if you think of how you used to play back then in Brentford Academy, it's very, very different to the type of play that we're, we are involved with with QPR Academy, which is very technical, very nice football played on the ground and everything. Like, it, it, does, it, is it, does it work that you're nearly gone the opposite way in that, okay, I don't want my team playing like we used to play when we were young? Or how, did it, how does it work for you? 
Yeah, I think I had to get my head around that technical new modern era game because we just used to stick it in the channels and put your head on it and, and block. But then I think these days we've lost that art of defending. So we used to head the ball, we used to get our body on the line. So that's what you can bring to the table because if you can't defend as a centre-half fullback, then you're not getting a job. It doesn't matter if you can play into the midfield or you can clip it to the nine. Um, and the same goes for Gaelic. Number one job role is defending. So I think yeah. that's something that I'm passionate about and that's something that I think I bring to the party with the academy players and, and developing them here. Yeah, definitely. Stevie, what, what do you reckon? I mean, if you think of Gaelic now, the, the cornerback is like an attacking outlet. He's getting up his score and he's getting goals. The wing back is spending as much time in the opposition half as his own half. Do you think the, the, the art of defending is lost or am I just coming from a, a, a point of view of I'm down the soft southeast of Ireland, not up, up in Ulster? No, I think you're right. And just before I came on the show, Kieran had a, had a conversation on the phone there with James McCartan, the Down Minor manager. We were just chatting about training tomorrow night and what we need to do. And, you know, we, we, we played a challenge game at the weekend. We committed a lot of individual fouls. And, you know, we're not, obviously, down teams don't play very, very defensively. So, you know, at, at times we will leave ourselves quite exposed at the back. And maybe the art of that one to one individual defending isn't coached enough. Yeah. Maybe tackling isn't coached enough as a skill. And I know Collins with some fantastic innovative drills there that they probably incorporate that 1v1 scenario because sometimes we go into a games-based approach and you can hide in games and you play overload games and underloads and the likes of that and plus ones at the back and how to break down. And we spend a lot of time trying to break down a blanket defensive training maybe. Mm. And we don't spend a lot of time in isolating our defenders in a 1v1 situation or 2v2 or 3v3. And when it happens in a game, then they, you know, they get nervous and it's, it's probably one of the reasons why the likes of Kilku here are successful and down is because, you know, that they, they have defenders who can trust themselves and back themselves in a 1v1 situation. You know, Dublin were the same. The team, ironically, that has been closest to Dublin in the last decade for me is probably Mayo. And Mayo were the one team in their prime who had six defenders who could actually mark man-to-man, you know, in the game and were confident enough of doing that. But just come back to the point that Colin made about Stephen Cluxton. I think one of the one of the biggest changes in Cluxton's approach to kickers, and I'm sure Colin might agree with me here, was the speed of them. You know, it was taking them 10 to 15 seconds to get kickers away, and it was allowing the opposition to get organised, etc., etc. Now they're away in super quick time. But but then again, a lot of teams maybe don't press Dublin's kick out every single kick, so therefore, you know, he does tend to get a lot of soft and cheap, you know, kickers away. But it's it's the it's the quickness of the restarts now and the speed in which they're in which they're, they're given now, Kieran, that makes the, the game so interesting so fast as well, you know. Yeah. The rules, I mean, the yeah. rules have changed. The rules have changed. And I go back to 2003. I think that was the first, for me, that was the first memory I have of cornerbacks who could play football. Ryan McMenamin, for example, was as comfortable going forward in the final 21 as he was in, the, in his own 21, you know. And I think that was a lot down to how Mickey Hart had, had coached his team as well, you know, very much a games-based approach to training way back then. Paddy Talley was the coach in 2003 before uh, Mickey, before Paddy moved on and Mickey brought in, you know, other coaches and the likes of Gavin Devlin and boys like that more recently. But, you know, Jerome, Mickey always had a had an athlete-centred approach where players took responsibility, you know, in, in training and therefore when it came to the game, they could think for themselves on the pitch as well, you know. Yeah, I think there, there's always that place in, in the modern game for, for individual coaching, isn't there? No matter what level, no matter what team, you know, you see it in the Premier League where maybe some of the teams in the lower half, you kind of get the, the feeling that those players feel, some of them feel that, okay, well, I can't learn more. And then the really, really top level coaches like 
your Klopp and your Guardiola and, and Jim Gavin and, and them in the in and Colum in the inter in the inter county world that they're trying to improve that player at all stages, you know, and you never stop learning. Um, yeah. Stevie, I'm, I'm interested. It, it'll be an interesting one for anybody who is following your down team. And I know it's, 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 it's an underage team, so we don't want to put too much emphasis on, on you know, success and stuff like that. But with, with Carlo, at times you played with a very defensive setup, um, obviously racked up big scores in different games. Now you're in down with James McCartan, who's like, you know, the ultra modern player, even back in the 90s, all action, attack and everything like that. I'm interested to see how the, the team is going to play and how, how you've set them up with more the philosophy around the team. Yeah, well, I'll tell you how we're going to play after we play for Manor in three weeks' time in the championship. <laughs> yeah. No, but listen, you know, look, look it's, it's horses for courses, Colin, or Kieran, it's horses for courses. You know, like at the end of the day, you know, when when I went down the road to Carlo, you know, you're looking at their at their record, at their previous record, a lot of a lot of psychological scars from big big beatings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a shocking defensive record, conceding an average of, of over twenty points a game, which which is which is which is comical. Like when you actually think about it, you know, you're never going to win a game of football, but you you might win one or two. You you might outscore a team 22, 21 or twenty three, twenty two, but there'll be sporadic wins. You know, there'll be no there'll be no consistency in it. You know, but but to go probably, you know, 14 games in the National League with just one defeat in two seasons, like, was, was huge for the group, you know, and, mm. and a lot of that came from being just really, really well organised here, and, um, you know, we did do a lot of work, uh, you know, on our shape and our structure, but we also did a lot of work on on, on transitioning from, from defence to, to the final third, which is, which for me is the hardest challenge, like, you know, to try and install a system of play, you can easily set a team up that are hard to beat, but you also need to go and try and win the game. And you know, I always was of the of the assistance, you know, give me give me a forward line like Cora Finn and I'll play a different way, you know. And we were probably just unfortunate with Carlo that we just really had two really good scoring forwards and you know when you took Paul out of the team, you know, you were taking a huge chunk of your scoring out of the team as well, you know. So you sort of had to play quite a rigid system. Plus what I found here with the players as well was with a lot of very and you know from playing against Carlo a number of times, with a lot of strong runners of the ball. You know, Sean Murphy, Brendan Murphy, Sean Gannon, Kieran Moore, uh, you know, really good, Jordan Marcy, really good athletes, really good, powerful runners. So, therefore, we set our team up based on a, on a more of a counter-attacking style of football, which we would run the ball a lot more through the hands than we would kick it. And it was actually yeah. in the end of 2019 when we were starting to evolve a little bit. We were using Brendan inside, and in, and in pre-season, we'd worked on, on two or three different plays where we would play a long diagonal ball in himself and Dara Foley trying to get used to the mark, but then what happened was Paul got an injury at the start of the National League and that's covered all our plans. You know, so all of a sudden, you know, to move Brendan out of the middle, you were robbing Peter to feed Paul, etc, etc. So we had to sort of play that way, you know, but listen, you know, it, it, it's for me and Paul will probably agree with me here, I don't see myself as an offensive coach or a defensive coach or a goalkeeping coach. I see myself as a football coach, you know, and that's, that's yeah. and whatever, whatever group you think there, you look at the group of players you have, you know, you see your defense of you see what your weaknesses are, your are your perceived weaknesses, you know, when you try and maximize what you can out of the group like that. That's yeah. yeah. Column, you you've got a real you've got a real challenge being involved with a county in Leinster because mm. you, you can you can set up defensively, you can go so far, you can perform, you can beat some of the smaller teams or the weaker teams, 
but the looming threat of a Dublin. And I'm using this as an example. I'm not looking for insights about how you know how you set up against Dublin and stuff like that. But I'm just looking for insights as regards like you know that a defensive game plan like that won't beat the best of the best. And the 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 tactical innovations now coming on stream from Kerry and Mayo and even Donegal and the likes of them are you have to go out and attack as well. So if you want to beat the likes of Dublin, if you want to win in All-Ireland, if you want to win a province, you're going to have to have an attacking game plan as well and take the game to them. I mean, is that is that a difficult thing for... I'm not going to call Mead a smaller county now, but a, a less successful over the last few years to come up against a, 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 the kind of might of a Dublin. Right, yeah, look, um, it's, it's a very interesting question that you pose, and, and I can look at it from a couple of angles, because I was um, I coached Loud for a couple of years with, um, with Colin Kelly, and it's the same thing there. And it's a bigger task um, based in Dublin with the likes of Loud than it is with, with Mead, per, per se. But um, I remember when Stevie's Carlo played um, Dublin down in... Um, Dr. Cullen Park uh, and gave a really, really good performance, right? And showed that uh, if you get that part of the game right, that um, you'll compete with them. Now, the fellas aren't stupid, they know that, right? And this is, I mentioned it to you earlier on about um, what a pre mortem is. Like, um, if you're really looking to improve a team, you have to spend a lot of time with them. And, and I, I'd be fascinated, like, about um, the quick change of managers and things. It takes a long, long time to build a team, it takes a long time for you to um, actually really get into the nuts and bolts of coaching of a group and know them, right? So if you're comfortable with a team, you can say to them, listen, lads, right? And I think, like, this is, a lot of people don't like saying, but you can kind of say, like, we might not beat these guys, right? But what we can get out of it is of a performance that we can build on if we perform A, B, or C. And if that continues our graph on the rise, you'll beat them one day, right? That you have to kind of have some sort of um, outcome added, right? So, like... Years and years ago, like Mead underage teams are competing and beating the Dublin teams. Mm. So you've got a constant stem of players coming through that haven't got that fear of failure against Dublin, right? Um, Mead have to target themselves against Dublin and Kildare and compete with them to enable the progress. And they know that. So they're selling point. Um, we watched them closely. If we felt that the body language was defeatist or if they were kind of, um, you know, just there to, to, to pass an evening, We'd sense that. They're not. They're there because they want to improve and they feel, right, they, they actually want to play them, right? They want to measure themselves against them and they want to go back and say, okay, and this, that, and the other. I'll tell you a very interesting story. Sorry, we played them last year in the um, Lancer final and um, we, we, we had a few plans that worked, right? And we were really pleased with them, right? A, a few plans. And we, we were kind of saying, you know, this is working, that's working, right? But what really kind of stumped us is they figured it out in real time, the players themselves, right? They sussed out what we were doing and what we were trying to do and cut it off themselves. Now that fascinated me, you know, mm. that fascinated me that they could think like that as a group together. And that kind of shaped their way of how we're going to prepare if we ever come across them again. It means we need to keep more and more things up sleeve. I don't know if Stevie would understand that, but we knew um, that we had a certain way of getting to them and we were getting certain success. And then bang, they sussed it out and shut us out. And we hadn't got another plan. <laughs> you know I mean? because, um, so that kind of stumped us a little. But that's, that's all what the learning is now. And, and again, you know now, right, like that, you know, that certain things work against them, but you've got to keep producing and producing. And you've got to keep disrupting them. And you've got to be curious. And you've got to be testing. You've got to keep doing all them things. So your training has to be sort of geared towards that. Yeah, I think... I think 
Stevie, isn't it that you're you're setting up a tactical, uh, you're setting up your team in a tactical way that can bring the team to the finishing line. So that ten minutes to go in the game, we're, look, if you do what we're putting forward here, this plan, we'll get you to ten minutes to go, and then ultimately, then a little bit of luck and a bit of creativity and talent and stuff, then we'll win out the game. And it's it's a tricky one. Yeah, there's no doubt. But here, just it's interesting what Colin said um, about them working it out. Colin, here's a very interesting story for you. Uh, I was playing golf there a few weeks back with Niall Morgan, the drone goalkeeper, and he was telling me that in the All Ireland final in 2018, they had two or three kickout strategies. And he said, you know, they obviously had worked on them in the lead up from the semi final to the final. And he says, within 10 minutes, Dublin had worked out what all three were, Colin, you know. Yeah. And that's serious, serious on-field leadership. Okay. That's serious, serious on-field thinking. And that comes, obviously, from the coaching and the exposure that they're getting, you know, and the level of detail that they're going into. And ironically, the year that we did play them, in, in at least that year, in 2017, you know, we put up a credible performance. And we did feel we would love to have taken them down the last 15 minutes in the game. And I think if Brennan had to be sent off, we probably would have. Because he was sent off in the 45th minute. I think there was three or four points in it at that stage. And I think, that, you know, they were starting to rumble a little bit. They would have beat us. They would have found a way to beat us. But I would love to have just taken them down that home stretch just to even be in the game. And it was only really an injury time that they did stretch away when, when we were down to 14 men. But I actually got a real vested interest column in them after that from a coaching perspective. And I went to watch them on numerous occasions. And what I found was their attack completely changed after the Carroll game. Mm. They, they, they had more, you could see so much more basketball-orientated moves in them you know, the one-in, four-out formation where they literally hugged the sidelines, you know, had one man and the one man in the middle cleared the D, you know, and leaving space there for someone else to, you know, they were creating space and occupying space and they were doing that extremely well. But the one big thing I took from them was the width they introduced into their game after that was just on a scale that I'd never seen before in Gaelic football, you know. And, and listen, it takes a serious amount of discipline, but it also takes a group of players, as Colin says, who are willing to learn and yeah. learn and never stop learning. Like, and that's, that's a very difficult thing to bring in a group. And, yeah. and what, what you're saying there too, right, is by them in, in putting that weight on, right, that gives them more chances of one and one So it goes back to what you brought up at the start about the one-on-one tactic and the one-on-one um, sort of training. You know, you have to kind of prepare when you're playing Dublin for um, defending one-on-ones because they look for as many one-on-ones as possible. Yeah, they, they, they seek it out, don't they? Okay, yeah. we'll move on, guys, because we, we, could, we could spend all night chatting and Ross has to get, get home to the missus. Um, Stevie, an interesting one came up be, between us about what has this club season now shown to us about how you can and you, you can't prepare a team for the championship? So another, it's obviously a unique situation where it was a very short period versus other years where pre-season in GA club is you know, what is it, three months long or something like that. So what, what, what did you learn or what did you see? Well, interestingly, I heard Brendan Hackett today who managed Bally Mun, is that right? Brendan, yes. Yeah. I heard Brendan today speaking about, uh, you know, they just decided this year to cut back on long video analysis, long meetings, you know, because obviously they've no, they no option but to cut back on them because you weren't allowed, obviously, to meet inside, etc. and things like that, and change room chats and talks and the likes. And he says, look, we just thought we'd go out and train and enjoy ourselves and, and give the thing a right good rattle. And it, it helps when you've got a team like he has got. Like, but at the same time, you know, the approach that, that, that we took at Bransford and ourselves was very, very similar in the point of view being that we just seen it as a free hit. But we also took a very much a football approach to, to, to the training pre-season. And I think the players enjoyed it more. And I think 
I think all club managers would probably feel that this is the one year that there was the retention of players, you know, big numbers at training. And I think part of that was you didn't have the four or five month long slog. And it makes me think here you really need that volume of training for a club season. Does a club yeah. player really need four or five months of pre-season? And again, this is something that, that, that the GA need to look at from a split season point of view. You know, if there is a definite club season beginning and end, and a definite county season beginning and end, obviously club coaches and, and club managers can prepare and, and, and plan a little bit better. But I was at a very interesting Zoom before lockdown, and it made me really think about a lot of stuff. It was Martin Lockern, uh, performance lab in Tyrone. Um, performance, uh, he's, a, he's a sports physio, but a lot of his teams have actually gone on to be very successful this year in their club championships. But he was giving advice to club managers returning to play. And the, the one wee thing was very interesting. He says, don't chase... Don't, don't, don't chase two rabbits, you know, in, in the point of view being, he says, just go after one thing, either just focus on your football or focus on your fitness and don't try and, 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 and try and juggle too many things. So it's an interesting one. And I do feel that, yeah. you know, Pierre, we maybe need to just bring a bit more enjoyment back into the club season, you know, expose the players for a lot more games. But we're fortunate down, um, you know, that there is a good, good volume of games for me. Normally we would have 18 to 28 games. Yeah, uh, you know, in in town club football, which is brilliant for the club fans, and it's very little disruption. I can't really complain about it. But it sounds like the road and a three month window of no club action midway through the season. That's you know. So yeah. I think yeah. moving forward, I think we've learned some good lessons in how the season can unfold. Yeah, definitely, Ross. You you obviously have plenty of experience in this area of in in with the professional football teams like this year. So, do you want to tell the listeners just about it was a kind of a shortened, intensified preseason, and maybe just what what are some of the things that worked well, and and how you prepared the players to be you know at a hundred miles an hour then for the beginning of the season. Yeah, I think it was, um, we was never going to win in, in a way because players, you know, we've had a few injuries, we've had more injuries than we normally have pre-season. Like Stevie said, we're trying to get them up to scratch with more fitness through games and game-based stuff because, you, of course, we isolate a little bit of some fitness work, but you need to get them prepared for the first game within two or three weeks and they haven't played for four months. So it was very difficult. Um, I think we've done well in terms of gradually building back in and, and you can't expect too much of them too soon. The low thing's important. But I think also just recognising that some players will will break unfortunately with that sudden increase in training um, yeah. and and you just try to manage them the best you can so very difficult situation we'll take lots from it um, on the analysis of data and, and how we went about it coaching wise and fitness wise and hopefully we're not in that position ever again yeah I think it's interesting because as well if you think of the old-fashioned way of pre-season in soccer and also in Gaelic like the first month is running no balls you know, laps around the pitch and um, gym on the side of the pitch and everything like that. But like we would have started from day one, wouldn't we? With the ball, you know, straight away the ball introduced and, and technical skills and some possession based. I, I mean, Ross, that's, I think most clubs are doing it that way, but I, I'd fear that there are some situations, maybe some sports that they're not doing it. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we never done that. We never done just the fitness only stuff. And we always had interspersed with, it's so important that you get your technical work, your tactical one. And like, especially in football, you haven't got time to, for, for managers to come in. They haven't got three, four year tenors. They, they've, they've got short turnaround. So they've got to set their team up and, and maximise their, their time. So as soon as you get in, the technical work, the tactical work, it's essential. And then you, you isolate the aerobic stuff and see where your squad are and what they need and what the individuals need to, to get up to the physical level to compete. Yeah, definitely. 
uh, Colm, you, you, you brought up an, an interesting one, which I didn't know about. You said mood, mood follows action uh, with your players. And I'm, I'm quite interested. You said some, of the, some coaches and some players don't know what that is. And I, I had to hold my hand up and say, well, that, that included me. Well, well, it means a whole lot, um, here, an awful lot. And, and the concept comes from a fellow called um, Rich, Rich, Roll, Rich Roll. He's an ultra athlete in America and he has a, a, a mega podcast. He's all about um, self-improvement. Um, and he preaches this mood follows action. And I've been looking into it a good bit. And basically, um, I try to touch it in the book, touch on something about it in the book. And it's basically this, right? You arrive into training. Um, you might've had a bad day. You might've been fighting at home. You're not in the best of moods. The last thing you want really is a coach that's going to come down heavy on you or a heavy session. It's just going to make that mood worse. So your learning is very, very limited, right? Even down to this, um, I'm a big, big believer, right? Um, about emotional intelligence in the pitch, on the pitch. like. You know, because you've been involved with London and Wexford, same way Stevie and Ross has, right? All these boys can play football. Mm. But what separates them from the, um, the really top side? And a lot of it comes down to emotional intelligence. So I try to simplify it for younger, younger players, and it's simply this. If you make a mistake playing the game, right, what follows that is your mood. And your mood is going to be a little bit downbeat. Now, if you remain in that mood, you're going to make further mistakes. So I really preach to the guys as much as possible. When something goes against you in a game, right, as quick as possible, do something positive, a simple hand pass, okay, a good tackle, and then start talking to yourself, reward yourself, say, that's brilliant, well done, I'm, I'm back in the game, that sort of self-talk, right, and that changes your mood, you know, if you get me, so mood following, um, it's basically just don't think, do, right, yes. I'm trying to say that to fellas, now, um, a lot of young players, it's the emotional intelligence that we need to educate them, in that stuff happens in games, it's how you react to it, right, and you can, you can kind of help your reaction, along the right path. Like I've seen lots of players that make a mistake. Let's say they have an open goal and they miss it. They could be gone for five or 10 minutes of that game. They're contributing nothing because they're dwelling on it. Where if you can say to them, get your hands on the ball, get a five, center, a five meter hand pass, and your brain starts telling you now, you're back in this game, you've done well, and things like that. So yeah. your mood will follow your actions. So if your actions, like we all make mistakes, and you're going to make mistakes, you kind of have to encourage them to make mistakes. You have to create a struggle for a young, young player without them being a struggle. A struggle. So in training, right, set up scenarios that you're going to ask them questions, but they're doing something they love in games. You get me? So for instance, you, if you're going to create lots of mistakes and there's your coaching cue, right? Your next job is to get your hand on the ball and make a simple pass, okay? And start saying, right, well done, Colin, I'm back in. And that sort of stuff. That's hard to do, you know? And the younger you yeah. can get players thinking like that, the better, you know? Yeah. But that's kind of where that comes from. But he's an interesting fellow, Rich, Rich Roll. Now, some of his um, podcasts are out there, but you pick up a few little nuggets, you know. Yeah, it's the, it's the brilliant old advice, isn't it, at the beginning of the game, where the selector comes over to you and he says, just do something simple at the beginning yeah. of the game. Win the ball, lay it off, <laughs> and then play yourself into the game. Ross, we, we, we do a good bit of work, don't we, in the academy with the, the well, the sports psychologist does, with just be in the now and... and you know, even practice that at home and before a session and when you get up in the morning. Yeah, and I mean, that's sports psychology firsthand. Do you know what I mean? That's how, that's how psychology applies to the game. And we say stay in credit. So if you've got a player who's taking a few risks, and which is what they're paid to do, they might be wingers, they, that might be their job role. But like Colm said, it's not gone right for them. Stay in credit, give yourself two, to cap out, play to the centre of the pitch. And like you said, you get the action, you get the mood back up. And, and then you get yourself in credit to be able to try again and try and take on the man again. So yeah. I, I, that's phenomenal. I think that's psychology. That's how it should be in the applied world, you know, and how you apply it into 
of the game. Yeah, definitely. Colm, I'm interested, and I'd say a lot of listeners will be interested because they see a lot of your practices and drills and everything like that. Um, what would a training, a typical training session for you, what, what does it look like? Let's say if we're talking about inter-county level or senior yeah. club or something like that. Well, again, it, that ties nicely into parts of the discussion that we're having here t- tonight is because um, like we know now we have a, one of the beauties about these, these split seasons and the club season that now is you had your fixtures um, in place. So we know our fourth championship date is the um, 7th of November. So we, we, we work back from that. Our periodization plan starts back from that and we have all our dates lined out. And we're, we're, we're very much like most county teams up to speed with our S&Cs. I, I don't even like calling them S&Cs. I prefer it to be just conditioning coach, right? Because um, people lose sight of, of, of what it is. But we have a brilliant um, conditioning team in Niall Ronan and Calvin Finnegan. And they let us condition the team through football. So they monitor everything. Okay, um, There's no heavy slog, particularly now. And the odd occasion, they might say less or more. But basically, as much as we can do through the football. So... To give you an example there now, we played a challenge match there on Saturday. So uh, we're back on the pitch now and we're only allowed to train Tuesday, Thursday and one weekend. We're only allowed to train three nights a week. So basically, believe it or believe it or not, now I say this in a good way, but um, I have nearly six hours access a week to the players. Now, that's, that's brilliant, right? But in that six hours, if you think about it, right, you can't do situational coaching for the whole six hours. Right. You can't do um, problem solving coaching. You have to mix up your, your tech, your tack. You have to mix up everything. So I would always now um, start a session with, I, w- w- I would love now, we, we work really hard on getting slick angles of passing and, 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 and tight passing. So you'd always have some hand passing exercises. Then you try to, what I always try to do is play some sort of possession games using the foot. Right, and then we always have shooting in your exercises. Now, the shooting has to vary from um, unopposed to semi-opposed to opposed, or there'll be no um, transfer into the games. And then there has to be tactical work. So kind of, that's where the pretense of the whole stuff is sent. Now, we would always um, grade the session. We give an RPE at the start, and, and the condition coach would always say, uh, make tonight's session a seven, or make tonight's session an eight, depending on what the load is and the games and things like that is. So everything is prepared, and we've already got now this week's training plan. I have the content. I, um, I send it off to the SNC coach. He has a look at it, send it off to the manager. The manager now dictates at the end. He'd either say, I want more of this or less of that. And that's the way it is, and, and I'm quite happy with that. Um, because, you know, the more people that look over your session, the, you know, you're going to bet. Get. And then what I try to do really is um, try to have minimum input during the session. Um, throw in lots of different scenarios. I don't tell them what the object is of games. I'll give you an example. One of the things I'm working on, and I don't mind admitting this, um, I think Eddie Jones is a fascinating coach, and I've been kind of really looking up a lot of him lately. And he's been playing a lot of these games where simple possession games, but after about a minute or so, he blows the whistle and every player drops on the pitch and do a press-up or a roll and the back-up. I've been working to, with that a lot, and I tell you what it does, it creates chaos. Right? <laughs> the only condition I put on is that the game must restart with a foot pass. But as soon as the guys get up, they could be in mid, mid-attack, they could be mid-defense, right? and then all of a sudden, they're on the ground, they have to get up, they have to scan again, they have to look. It's just brilliant, right? And the feedback from the players afterwards is that is they lose all sense of what they're trying to do. Mm. Like it's like, and, and it's great. So what we're targeting there, and I didn't tell them why what we're doing it. They have to figure themselves out. It's just changing, challenging their decision making. Yeah. Right, on and off the ball. And yeah. um, so I would really, I wouldn't talk a whole lot through that. Say we're playing a twelve minute game, and um, I just let it play. I try not to stop it because then it becomes about you and not them. You know yeah. that sort of stuff. 
but yet there has to be some sort of feedback in it. So that would kind of be the breakout down of our session. But again, we would be working back from our first championship date, which is the 7th of November. And that gives us a great, um, it's brilliant to have that date. We yeah. wouldn't plan any further than that, you know, and uh, we could get, I think we worked it out, we had 32 sessions. Yeah. You know, and then, which, which gives us a good platform to plan. Yeah, definitely. Okay, that's really interesting. Stevie, how, uh, I won't ask the same question of you, but I'm, I'm interested, and I say people would be very interested because everyone has their own way of doing it, and, and Colin said the way that he does it a little bit, and my way of doing it with Ross and London lads was somewhat similar, sending out the coaching sessions at the beginning of the week and everything. But how did you organise that? So let's say, like, looking at Carlo or any other senior club that you're involved with, is, do you sit down and design all the sessions? Do you get input from the SNC? Do, you know, does the manager decide everything, or what's the dynamic there between kind of manager, coach, SNC coach? Well, I suppose, uh, Kieran, it depends on, on your manager and, and your setup. You know, Carlock as a manager is very much, you know, you're in charge of the football, you decide what way we need to go, that way that he might have said the odd thing, whatever. And it, you know, I think we need to work on X, Y, and Z, or I think maybe we need to look at this. Strength conditioning, Carlo was excellent. You had strong links with Carlo IT. The players' role, adult, you know, real great ownership and conditioning. They were a well conditioned team, in my opinion. Uh, Damien Sheehan did a lot of work with them uh, in small pods. The Dublin based players as well did their own work in Dublin. Uh, with the Down Miners, it's the same. You know, we have an SC coach uh, that, that works with the young lads. Obviously, the gym work now has come to a halt, unfortunately, because we were making great strides pre COVID uh, or pre lockdown, as you call it. Um, and you know, I think it's an important part of their education rather than their, not so much physical, but even mental for them to get into a psyche of, of, of gym culture, you know, and, and, and doing it the right way here and such, you know. So, yeah. you know, we, we, that sort of aspect is left to them, as what Colm said there as well. You know, the trust is placed then in the coaches to, to condition the team, very, very similar. Uh, the SNC coach might come in at the start and do a little bit of pre warm up stuff, which obviously helps prevent injury. Uh, but it'll be minimal. It'll be minimal, and then it'll be passed on to us. Down Maynard is actually quite refreshing for me because um, normally I'm taking warm ups, bunker sessions, all the coaching. But it's great actually to come in. And you know, one of the things that I was delighted when I, when I spoke with James last year was that you know he's got a good management team there. Mark Poland's been already for a couple of years, so Poli does a good bit of coaching. So, for example, yesterday we just stayed behind at the end of saying yesterday and said, right, Tuesday night, I'm doing the first half of the session tomorrow night. We committed a lot of individual fouls, so I'm going to work tomorrow night quite a bit on tackling uh you know different types of situations put them into different types of situations in the tackle just harness that little bit of technical you know work on the tackle and then mark's going to do some some games with them based around you know manipulating 3v2 situations we had about three or four 3v2s 4v3s that we didn't capitalize scores from so you're taking stuff from it's good that games Colin will probably agree with me here it's good when you have games because when you have games you can look at stuff that you need to work on the following week yeah and, 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 and harness but for me, Kieran, I take a slightly different approach in training. I give the players a lot of ownership. So I would bring the tactics board down now. And what I would do is I'd send one group away, you know, to set the team up the way they're going to play for a small game of maybe eight minutes. And another team would go away with another board and they would decide how they're going to play. And I would give them scenarios. So Blues, you're two points up. Okay, so how are you going to manage this eight minutes or this six minutes, whatever it happens to be. And as Colin says, you're trying to create situations where, where the players are doing the thinking and you're not doing the thinking for them. And then when we come in, I suppose the teacher had on me the two stars and a wish. So you'd say, right, two things we've done well, you know, and, and get the feedback off them. And then, you know, right, what's the wish? You know, what can we do better? You know, and, and that's, that's always a good philosophy I always take on the age teams. Is that little two stars and a wish that you give two positive comments 
and then one thing that they could do better because you know sometimes the coach will come in and say look here you didn't track him there now why did you not track him and yeah. that and he's saying look you also give the ball away and then he's going what did I, did I do anything positively you know and even from a self-esteem point of view it's, it's not great for you so I pull you in I secured great you know that was a great piece of play you were involved in there you've seen the man off the court or whatever it happens to be but you see the next time this happens you know just maybe try this you know and yeah. look everybody's different and the, everybody's got their own unique way of coaching Kieran you know and, and for me a game's based approach well, I love Colin's idea there now where he talked about that for the, the chaos you know because yeah. you need that you know where players understand in games there is going to be those situations that you have to that you have to respond to and the unfortunate thing is and Colin and Ross will understand when the players cross the white line here, you know, there's 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 only a certain amount that you can do after that. You know, it's it's up to them to work it out. And the really good teams can work it out. You know, I, I watch Kalku quite a bit here and down. Nine titles in the last 10 years or 11 years, whatever it is. You know, Dublin are the same. Their own pitch leadership and their own pitch adaptability is is just it's just class. It's great to watch. It's yeah. really, really great to watch. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It brings us on nicely to a couple of questions. We had some really good questions from some of the members, actually. They were emailing them, WhatsApping me privately. Um, Colin, one, one for you. Uh, one member said that uh, some of the videos on your YouTube channel will be quite prescribed. So go around the cone, uh, get around that pole, then you must do this, then you must do that. Like, how... What percentage of your coaching is kind of working on that individual skill versus that more chaotic environment where we let them, okay, we just let them off, we let them learn, and we don't give them much instruction? Well, that, like, that, that, that's, again, that's a, that's a great question. And um, I, I often think about that sometimes, like when, when we use the words game-based training, um, people kind of expect that all the activities are going to be games. Mm. Where if you can imagine, it, um, it's a jigsaw that we're trying to create like you know the, the match is the completed jigsaw so what i'm doing in them sort of things is um i have kind of picked the situation of a game that i want to work on so i'm that's the entry level of it if you, if you get me so for instance one of them could be kind of coming off an angle to, to take a shot so that's why you'd have the poles and cones i'd be illustrating about um I like i'd be a big believer on kind of cutting the runs no straight lines so i would have set um cones and and, and poles up to kind of Firstly, to show the player why not to go straight, you know. So that would be your first part. Now, like again, a lot of my sessions would be kind of linked up, where um, I'd be looking to see by by the end of the, get, the session some of these moves in a game situation. If you get me, so yeah. I would kind of be taking um, parts of the the, the, um, the activity I want, break it down into kind of some sort of um, demonstration where they kind of learn the movements, they, they get what it's about, and then we try to put it into free play. That's my style. It's not. I'm not saying it's the right style. It's something that I've kind of always always done. And um, again, it goes back to as I explained there about the six hours. If you have six hours with you, like it gives you time. Like we're very very lucky to have that time. So it gives you time to do situations like this and bring it forward into games. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I I have to say my 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 own philosophy as regards coaching is I call it scenario based training. So match scenario based training where you're setting up a situation that you're likely to see in a match on every weekend. Stevie, you became you became famous and, and infamous with Colin Parkinson's uh, uh, show when you put up about the transition. You had a six or seven transition transitional practices 
on Twitter that you did for a coaching clinic, um, which were brilliant. And I would have called them kind of scenario-based coaching. So what happens when you lose the ball and you have to quickly turn, get back down the pitch and defend? Um, then you go from defending to attacking. But uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting. Yeah, listen, the only reason Colin probably got, in, got stuck in it, Kieran, was because he wouldn't understand coaching. The only, the only closest <laughs> Colin had to coaching was when he got rid of the managers when he was a player. Like, that was the only closest he ever got to the managers when he got rid of them, you know? But, uh, but no, listen, look, hey, listen, for me, the, the, every game for me, Kieran, has to have a, a, it has to have a focus, it has to have a purpose. And Colin, yeah. might, Colin would understand what I'm saying here when it says, like, I love telling the children the name of the game. So, for example, at underage level, like rub the nest, you know, a wee simple warm-up game. So they understand when you're going to rub the nest, there's eggs in the nest, you're going to rub the nest, they're taking the eggs away, you know, and there might be four squares with four or five balls in each square. You might have a group of players running everywhere, going and stealing a ball, bringing it back to your own nest, you know, just a wee simple warm-up game we would do with underage teams. But the purpose of the transition thing was, and I'll explain the game actually that actually caused the sensation. Uh, it was called like sort of blast-off transition or something that was okay. And, the reason behind it, Bradley actually made a bit of a, a, a laugh of it on the Sunday game one night, and you know, it, another man who don't think knows his arch his elbow when it came to coaching. But listen, it, it, this is this is the interesting one. So yeah, the purpose behind the game was that you had ten defenders protecting the D, which way most teams do now, and, and four left up front, and the play would involve for about 20-30 seconds. So if the attacking team hadn't scored in 20-30 seconds. You blow the whistle, you throw a ball in, and the defensive team blast off. Okay, so if you think, and you're trying to picture a symbol where a young person understands the firework, what happens? What happens, children, when a firework explodes in the city? It goes everywhere. So we want players going everywhere. We want the man and the ball to have options. So it's nearly like three simple things when you counter attack. You know, you want pace, you want numbers, and you want width. So you're trying to get that picture, you know, you're trying to paint a picture for the young people. And you know something, Colin will tell you as well, not just young people, you know, some of the adults that do coach as well will have come from a very, very dumb level of coaching. Colin might pick up, and this is no disrespect, but he might pick up a player in me who has come from maybe a smaller club where he hasn't maybe, he maybe hasn't experienced Sigerson football or third level football, and he's coming from very primitive coaching. Like I remember one of my first couple of sessions with Carlo, and this came from eight-year-old players who were one of the best clubs sides in Leinster in their time, and we're in a Leicester final next year. And I had eight-year-old club players saying to me, you know, this is unreal. Like, you've got to understand, we've never been coached before. And I'm going, wow, 25 years of age, you've never been coached, you know, and that's, that's scary. So, you know, you're trying to do that, Kieran. You're trying to make them innovative. You know, Colin, obviously, would have his critics as well as myself. You know, who does he think he is putting this stuff up on social media, et cetera. But as I said at the start of the show, sharing is learning. The greatest resource we have is each other. And the more people that... that you know, coaches, people that coach and people that understand the game, you know, really appreciate what Colin's doing there with his yeah. groups and that as well. And, and yeah. I do as well because it's, it's invaluable. And it's yeah. just even to get into this. No, definitely. Can I just jump in, Karen, if you don't mind? Because yes. um, I think it's important, like, and it, it goes to yourself as well. Like, it's difficult putting yourself out there, right? And when you put yourself out there, you're going to get people knocking. It's the easiest thing in the world to knock. And I have to say, like, I mean, a lot of that didn't sit comfortably for a while because it's a different generation. But um, it's only for the likes of Stevie and that. Like, I remember before I even got to know him, um, I'd send him an off from an email and say, any chance to notes from this and that. And he was always very forthcoming, right? And it's people like Stevie and yourself 
that kind of encourages other people to share, right? And um, look, I remember somebody saying to me, you're very brave with putting stuff out there. And I said, I'm not brave. Firemen are brave, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I put, I know what he meant. He was kind of saying that there's too many people picking holes and saying this, that, and the other. And it's the easiest thing in the world. Like I always say to everybody, right? If you get something from it, you get something from it. If you don't, you don't. Nobody's telling you this is the way to do it or that. But I do think what I get back from it, from sharing, is meeting guys like yourselves who share ideas. And, and, and that's how I continue to learn. Because yeah. where, where are we going to get our information from unless we kind of share with each other that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, long ago, I, I, I stopped listening to people giving out about stuff. Ross, I'm going to jump to you because I know you've, you've, you've to get going. Um, the last one for you, Ross, just about to tie it in with the games-based approach and the scenario-based coaching, you see merit also in that isolated skill practice, don't you? And I mean, you, you do it in your day-to-day -day work, but also we probably tried to implement it a certain amount with the London guys as well. Yeah, and I think it's important to tie in with what Colin and Stevie said. It's got to be realistic and specific to the game. So we work on a passing drill, but it's, you, you put a picture in the player's head, the specific moment of where he's going to move to receive and play forward or when someone has to support underneath the ball. But the reason why I find merit in it is because I feel like sometimes we put them into a game situation and we just expect them to be able to do it. Well, actually, we have to take them back to the lab. And like Stevie said, some of them players haven't been coached. So you do have to break it down. But then it's all about balance so when I was at Chelsea, we used to have a, a rule that 30 minutes maximum of unopposed work because it has to become game-based after 30 minutes. Now, you might not use that 30 minutes, but that was the cutoff point because you do need players to be able to figure it out in different situations. And it doesn't always look nice and pretty when you're receiving the ball in the half turn behind the cone and playing forward. You've got opposition and you've got interference. What happens when the movement of your number nine isn't how you, how you want it to be? You can translate these in, into Gaelic and, and football and hurling. You know, principles still apply. Yeah. So it's all about scaffolding. So you work on a specific thing in the first part of the session. Then how does that then transfer into your possession practice or your principles? How does that go into your phase and your games? And, and you bring a real focus to the session. And that's how players learn, by having a real focus on an individual part of their game. And how does that then go into a situation where they've got to problem solve, they've got to think. And that's when, as a coach, the ability to step back at times and the ability to go in and spot and fix, that's when the, the art is the coaching and when and where to do it. So it's all about balance, but I, I do 100% see uh, merit in that isolated practice if you make it real and link it to their individual job role and their, and their performance. Yeah, exactly. I do like as well when the coach nearly sets out the stall at the beginning of a practice and says that there's going to be quite a lot of feedback in this. So the players know that, right, we're going to come back in, we're going to debrief, we're going to have a chat, you know, we're, we're setting up our tactical situation here and there's going to be quite a lot of discussion versus, okay, guys, you're go I'm going to let you play here. I'm going to let you just learn and problem solve yourself and, and after, you know, 10 minutes or whatever it is, bring back and, and start chatting it at that stage. Ross, we did get one question for you. I know you like this one from, from one of the members about he's got, so if you think about it, a GA team under 14, under 15, under 16, going into the off season period, they're not allowed into the gyms. He's wondering for that team, is it appropriate that they A, do a weights program B, should it be a loaded weights program? Um, and I've thrown in, if not doing that, maybe they will be. If not doing that, what are some of the stuff that they, they could be doing? Yeah, I mean, the, the myths of, of young kids not being able to load and things like stunting the growth and not good for their development, I think have long passed. So it's yeah. safe to do so for a 14-year-old. But 
what are the capabilities and competencies of that 14 year old have they are they good movers have they learned the different movements what's their training age within the gym if they haven't done much before then i would just stick to basic movements and body weight and teach them how to move over that period um, if they have got a good training age and yeah of course fine to load but i always say with the kids it's you know we talk about minimal exposure minimal dose if they haven't done any weight training and now they do and they do five weeks of body weight the next five weeks you might only need to go up to 10 15 kilos because that's overload for their body and they're learning and adjusting to that so yeah. be really gradual with the kids and that's with anyone even with adults that haven't haven't trained before yeah. um be gradual with the kids make sure they move well and it's safe to do so especially if it's remotely and you're not there coaching um and, yeah. and just see how the individuals you know get on within the group and that's where you individualize it a bit more yeah you, you do need to be careful don't you in terms of they're going through their growth spurt like their maximum rate of growth between the ages of for boys usually 13 and 14 for girls maybe 11 and 12 um so you do need to be careful of that and also watching their load on the pitch because they're completely interlinked aren't they like if you want to do a lot of work on the pitch you may have to do a little bit less in the gym and vice versa. If they're not doing as much on the pitch, maybe it's an opportunity to do a, a little bit more, isn't it? Yeah, and I think people just have to realise the gym work's only supplementary to the sport. You know, the only reason you do the gym work is A, to make them better at the sport or make them able to do the sport more. So you make yeah. them stronger, able, more robust. You know, I don't like the term, but it's fitting here. Um, so yeah, you just it's a supplementary training tool to make them play the sport more and get them better at sport. That's all it yeah, is. Yeah, definitely. Stevie, link, linking in with something that you had mentioned earlier, I mean people get obsessed about, well, let's get the kids or the adults in the off season now, let's get them into the gym and get them really strong and everything like that. Wouldn't it be lovely to see in the GA a little bit more emphasis on, okay, this is the off season, but can we play a little bit more sport, more of the game, meet up for whether it's a five-a-side soccer or a bit of hurling skills or even Gaelic football and just for it in terms of the club to become a little bit more recreational at different times if you have the opportunity here it's just you stole the thunder because i was going to make this point actually when when ross was talking about isolated practice and things like that you know i, I met i met kieran mcgini last year uh, for a cup of coffee in nuri and i just wanted to pick his brains about everything to do with football and and kieran was very open and, and everything about from fundraising right through to football it was great to pick the, the brains of a guy who, who's been at the top level for such a long period of time and one of the things, he's made a very interesting thing to me, and it's something that struck me, particularly over the last few weeks, and playing a good bit of golf myself. And I would go to the driving range, you know, and I would hit 40 or 50 balls. Okay, so before you go out to, to play the game, you go and you hit 40 or 50 balls as well. And then you get into a rhythm and you get in and you get better, and your skill improves and your striking improves. And he, he said a very interesting thing to me. He says, like, you know, how many senior intercounty footballers, and this might sound madly, but how many of them actually own their own football, right? And it's an interesting one. You're going, yeah, maybe, I wonder how many of them actually do. You know, and I would say if I had asked the Carla lads, who actually owns a football? They could borrow some from the group and they could borrow some from the bag. But how many boys actually own their own football? And how many boys actually go with their football? I go back to Martin Clark going to Australia the very first time. I was fortunate to work with Marty for two years as manager of a race back in, in 2010 when Marty came back home in 2010 for the first time. I had two seasons with him. And I got a great insight. I struck up a good friendship with Martin because he was based in our school of basement at the time for about 18 months. And I struck up a really good friendship with him as well as a, a coaching relationship and, and still do to this day. And Martin talks about Australia quite regularly, man. He says, when he first arrived for six weeks, it was skills-based. All he had to do was just harness the skills before they even thought of throwing him into a game. 
But he said even the more established senior players in Australia carried a ball everywhere they went. They were bouncing a ball in the corners of the club. They were going for their dinner. They were passing the ball to each other in the queue in their dinner. You know, everywhere they went, they had an oval ball in their hands. And it makes you wonder, and you look at the skill levels of hurling and the young players you see with a slither and a hurl in their hands. And I'd love to see, and I know, Kieran, there's a bit of stick fired out in lockdown about all these wall and ball sessions. Also, they're not a new phenomenon. They've been around for 50 years. Of course they have, but nobody freaking does them. You know, you go into the street now and you say no ball in the wall or whatever, and nobody's letting kick a ball or they're kicking the ball to the wall and the parents are saying, stop kicking that ball off the wall. You know, there's, there's, there's nobody promoting it. And I went down to Newbridge last year to Paddy Gribben to do a coach education thing with the Newbridge Club of Derry. And there's a fantastic wall ball right beside their club. And I says to him, take your under 14, they're really good on the 14 team. Take your under 14 team in here at a quarter to seven with their trainers and a ball each and spend 15 minutes on skill work. 15 minutes. You think of the volume of touches of the ball they would get in 15 minutes. Then go out into the pitch and do your games based stuff. Yeah. And there is an unbelievable session. If you were doing that three times a week, imagine the extra development of their skills that you'd be, that you'd be partaking in. And you would, you'd be saying that to your, your senior footballers now. You know, and many of them are actually still kicking the ball right foot, left foot off the wall, right hand, right, right hand, left hand. Extra 10, 15,000 touches a month, whatever it happens to be. Sean Kavanagh landed in an underage presentation back in and wrecked a way back way in the... In the uh, right about 2010 in Japan, there was a young lad called Conal Baldwin, Lord Rest of Pride, and on Christmas Eve that year, and took the man of the club and asked me, Marie's mother, my mother in law, Lord Rest of she had worked with Sean at the time, and she asked me, would he would get him down to the kingdom to give the wee group a lift? Because this young fella had passed away unexpectedly, and Kavanaugh came down, it was now wet January evening. But I always remember the message he told the young lads. This is a man who had won three All Ireland's, multiple All Stars, and achieved everything in the game. He says, he says, I'm going down tomorrow morning to the Moy pitch with a bag of footballs, he says, and I'm practicing my free kicks from the 14 to 21, the edge of the day, the whole way around, he says, in an arc. He said, I'll hit 40 frees tomorrow morning. He says, and many of you boys are going to be doing the same. And it's a very mm-hmm. interesting one, Kieran. That's 10 years ago nearly, you know, or a bit longer, whatever. But it just makes you think to yourself, you know, we can, we can get so warped with strength and conditioning and GPSs and all this. And, and the fundamental skills of our game are so easy to develop and harness. And I'd love to see more of that. Really yeah, yeah. Sean, Sean's book is somewhere up there and, and I finished it a couple of months ago just at the beginning of lockdown and it's, it's brilliant in that sense the amount of time he spent on just pure repetition kicking the ball over the bar and as you say free kicks and everything like that and it, it was brilliant and, and a, an eye opener uh, for me and he's he's my accountant so I have to keep him happy always and, and let him know how things are going every month um, Colm a, a la- last question and it's just linked in with that really the, the point that Stevie made I mean hurling is a very very skill based uh, um, sport I always remember Good Council College down school in Wexford and the Kilkenny lads the hurl was stuck to their hand going around in class with the ball the letter ball and all and like Ross will know in, in terms of professional football, the players are constantly doing flicks, keepy uppies, messing around, uh, football, tennis. In Gaelic football, are, are we missing a bit of a trick there in, in terms of just that skill development? I don't know. Like in, it, well, look, I, I can only speak for myself. And, and like, like, again, I was going to mention, like, I mean, my club here is Newtown Blues, and I have been coaching in that club for 20 years. I've been um, under sevens coach, adults coach, goalkeeping coach, right? And that's what we do. And um, I always preach to the guys, if you're just doing what I say or any other coach say, it's not enough. 
you have to be doing stuff on your own, right? Now, that's fair enough, but sometimes fellas want, um, you know, to be guided along them lines. Um, I find um, since I was allowed and made and place that and coached in with Leinster in the provincial team, we used to set up what's called, um, it's a soccer phenomenal arrival activities that um, when you arrived to training prior than just standing there and taking 45s, there were specific areas where you would work on, for instance, um, flicking the ball up with left foot, right foot and things like that. So they'd be your arrival activities. So players would go and spend a few minutes that before official training starts. So that way, what we were trying to do was bring the um, um, bespoke and extra training to them as such, you know, and now yeah. becomes like the norm. You have like what, what, which I think is phenomenal, them, the rebounders, right? Midfielder, nobody catches or coaches players how to jump and catch now the basics of head position and stuff like that. So players can explore that while they're waiting for training to, to start up. So that's just about coaches being a little bit creative, like you bring in the um, arrival activities and having them ready, bringing up the players. And players will love that, you know, so they'll kind of go to the area. You might have three of them set up a night. They will congregate in the area where they think they want to do a little bit of work on that. And again, it's not intense. They're not going to injure themselves. But to get a bit of time spending on fine tuning some of the um, finer arts of the game that you'd love them to, to see me doing. Um, again, you you we 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 do a lot of work now um, with with smaller footballs, size two footballs, right, um, and size three footballs. And I tell you what that does is that um, refocuses your precision of passing. And uh, fellas get so confident that they're they're executing motor skills for hand passing and stuff like that without even thinking. Sometimes you want them to think. Mm-hmm. A little ball, a smaller ball, they refocus the precision, the weight, the depth, and the periphery vision, all that sort of stuff. They can all be done in arrival activities. And players yeah. feel they're getting something different. And you know, in 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 a, in a low grade, uh, low impact uh, situation. So we, we do stuff like that and to try yeah. to get that stuff for them and keep them thinking. Yeah, no, that's brilliant, Ross. It, it, that links in with the ILP, the, the individual learning plans. That, so every QPR player will have a plan about his job yeah. essentials and what he needs to do. And do you want to tell the, the listeners just how, how they're developed just quickly and also at what stages of the training sessions they'll actually get an opportunity to, to practice them? Yeah, so it's split into two, really. You've got your job essentials, which when they get to, let's say, under 15, the topper end of the pyramid and into the youth team, what are they going to need to be good at to get to the next level of the pyramid? So that's their job essentials and defend. You know, defenders would have stopping the turn, 1v1 defending, whatever, and it's broken down into the details. But then you've also got the RP. So within that, what are they actually not specifically good at, which is, you know, individual to them? Is it turning off their wooden side, off their left side? Um, is it their head in? Like you said, Colin, no one actually teaches people how to jump, use the arm, hang in the air, jump early. We just expect players to be able to defend the back post, but we don't teach them how to, how to, how to head the ball. So you have your individual programs and then you have your job essentials. And they're, they're linked to a degree, but they're, they're individual to each player. And then there's different things. You've got arrival activities. You expect players to be working on their RPs before training instead of just taking 40-yard free kicks. And also, you have certain moments within the training where you'll go off defenders will go and do. You'd have unit work, which I think most, most people are doing. But the biggest thing is that you're, you're getting your individual programs in every session. And if the player shines a light on what they need to work on, whether you do a basic possession practice, whether you do a phase of play, whether you do an unopposed technical practice, they're getting what they need in that session. So they start to reflect on it in a different way. We're not just doing a passing and receiving drill. No, this is when I step into midfield and I create the overload. This is when I turn off my back foot and as the pivot man and spread, you know, change change the point of attack. So every player is getting their 
individual programs within training. So it's about educating the kids, educating the players about reflecting um, and, and developing over the years. And then over the years, their program changes. If, if they become more competent off their wooden side, their RP might be, okay, now we want you to clip 40 yards off the wooden side, not just a 10 yard pass. So we call it the zone of proximal development. It slightly shifts, shifts, um, shifts a little bit but kids just going back to your isolated practice there's not there's not one player who's that you think in any sport who is a phenomenal technician who can't do the practice unopposed if 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 Ronaldo um couldn't take a free kick with no pressure how is he expected to do it in front of 70,000 fans and with a wall there so you have to make sure they're good at the basics with no interference and then that gives them the tool to handle it in a, in a very stressful environment. So big belief on the technical development, but how you transition that into gameplay is important. Yeah, you're, you're adding to their toolbox, aren't you? I think that last point, I think it'd be really nice, like in Gaelic football, in hurling, in every sport, that it doesn't matter how young, but a player can have their ILP. So what do they need to work on over the next year, next few years specific to them? And I think it's, it's worth investing the time into it. Okay, guys, we, we leave it at there. We've gone uh, an hour and a quarter. We were hoping to keep it an hour, but we went an hour and a quarter. Uh, really appreciate you lads coming on. It's brilliant to have people with such experience and knowledge. I think we could definitely do this again at some stage, I hope, in the, in the next, uh, over the coming months in the off-season for the club. Uh, Colm, I know you'll be busy with Mead and best of luck in that. But it'd be great to get, get you back on and, and have a proper chat again. Thanks to our sponsors, Ripped.app, uh, for your support, as always. Stevie, we might, if you come across Joe, Joe Coulter some night, will you tell him his P45 is in the post? He's, he's gone, he's done. Yeah. Here, I, I will certainly. Is that Benny's brother? But hey, on a serious <laughs> uh, I will come back on whenever me to throw Dublin in, uh, in the camera in Park. We'll uh, we'll be back on. I maybe go on the pier with Colin for a few days up in Broad or something like that. <laughs> there you go. There's the challenge, Colin, for you. <laughs> There's the challenge. But especially, especially Colin and, and Stevie, really appreciate it, lads. Thanks, thanks for coming on. No thanks. problem. Thanks. Cheers, Jess.